Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. And hello, listeners. This is the News Items Podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, bringing you news items that we think are interesting, important, or both. It's Monday, April 19th. We'll start with two important science and tech headlines, and then we'll get into the news items. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is drug cartels. The Colombian drug cartels are turning to European markets to amp up their profits, so that's one. What what item stands out to you? Well, a dozen of Europe's biggest soccer clubs say they formed a super league of their own, and that's angered everyone from England's Premier League to French President Emmanuel Macron. Let's do that item second, and then stay in Europe for item number three. Germany's Green Party has picked 40-year-old political scientist Annalena Baerbach for the upcoming election in September. The Greens are running second in the German polling, which is very accurate, usually. So they're getting within striking distance. Absolutely. And after the break, I interview Ed Meir, the world's leading expert in precious metals, industrial metals, and supply chains. He is the metals guy. All right, let's start with those science and tech headlines. Indeed. First, researchers in San Diego have identified dozens of genes involved in fighting off COVID-19 infections. Science Daily reports that an understanding of the various ways these 65 genes suppress the virus, thus preventing severe disease, could inspire ideas for treatment. Some of these genes, curiously, react to unrelated viruses like the flu, West Nile, and even HIV. As the lead author of the study in Molecular Cell put it, though we now have vaccines to address the coronavirus, quote, it's vitally important that we don't take our foot off the pedal of basic research efforts. It's fits and starts in terms Mm -hmm. of trying to figure out how to deal not just with COVID-19, but, you know, future viruses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not earth shattering, but it moves the ball. Definitely an area to watch. Next, Toyota is going all in on electric vehicles. The world's biggest car maker will introduce 15 models by 2025. It currently only sells four of these, as Nikkei reports. Toyota unveiled part of their lineup at the 2021 Shanghai Auto Show on Monday. It's a compact SUV that can in part be recharged by solar power. Electric cars accounted for more than 4% of global car sales last year, a record according to a preliminary estimate by the International Energy Agency. What do you think, John? Toyota? going all in on electrics. Toyota took the leadership role, I guess you'd call it, in the hybrids. I've got two Toyota hybrids. You, you know have two, so yep. they're mm-hmm. right there as proof of That's concept. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an influencer. I'm a, hybrid, a Toyota influencer. Yes. <laughs> With Toyota in the electric car business, everybody's in and the race is on. That's sort of it. For it to work, obviously, you have to have charging stations everywhere. Now you have critical mass to insist that happens at all, every gas station. And the last holdout has come forward and joined the race. Yeah. Well, 15 models by 2025, that's pretty ambitious. Very ambitious. We will have worked through all those supply chain bottlenecks. Those will be a thing of the past. Toyota will be ready to go by 2025. So, News Items Podcast brought to you by Toyota. Just saying. saying. (laughs) We we take good care of our friends at Toyota. (laughs) All right. So, let's move on to the news items. According to The Guardian, Europe has surpassed the U.S. as the top market for Colombian drug cartels. A big part of that is higher prices. A kilogram of cocaine goes for roughly $28,000 in the U.S. In Europe, the average is $40,000. The increase in trafficking has been accompanied by violence. There have been grenade attacks, and Dutch police even found a torture chamber last summer. And just last month, Belgian police seized 27 tons of cocaine in Antwerp. 
John, are European authorities ready to take on the Colombian cartels? Yeah, the seizure that you mentioned was part of a uh, sting called Operation Sky, the name of which appears to be based on the authorities' ability to crack a private communication channel known as Sky ECC, Mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of telegram for drug cartels um, and was supposedly unhackable and completely secure. But the Belgian police were able to crack the code um, and thus follow in real time the activities of all of the moving parts of drug distribution. And they then executed this huge bust. This, just for the record, uh, was the biggest drug bust in Belgian history, taking over a billion dollars worth of cocaine off the streets. Colombian drug cartels want to push their product to ports in Antwerp and Rotterdam. There's a lot of shipping volume that goes through those ports, and so they have a better chance of getting it through. Let's say you have the Colombian drug cartels, which are subcontracting to Dutch and Belgian criminals who are in in turn subcontracting to Italian and Albanian and British and Irish organized crime. The Guardian laid this out in a really interesting way, and I thought, is this evidence that containerization has made its way to international narcotics? Or has that been going on all along? Antwerp and Rotterdam are like famously efficient ports, right? Mm-hmm. So the ship comes in, the unloading takes place, the containers put on the trucks, and therefore checking individual containers doesn't really work, right? Mm-hmm. So the cartels say, okay, even if we lose a container or two, most of what we ship over in the containers will get through because the product moves so fast, the losses would be minimal. And sadly for the cartels, the Belgian police figured out how to crack the network, the communications network. You know, now the drug cartels have to figure out what the next move is, and they're not quite sure how much the police know. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of frozen the trade, which, of course, would have the wonderful effect of driving up the price of cocaine even further. Policing operations have been very challenging for Europe in the past. Information sharing is something that's difficult. How has this worked out in terms of tracking, obviously, very wily drug cartel activity when there's this uh, legacy of complicated, shall we say, relationships among European police entities? Because of the war on terror, there's been a much improved, shall we say, interoperability. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure that's the right word. But, you know, obviously there are turf wars, all the normal stuff that goes on. But success breeds, you know, more success. So this operation will embolden future cooperation amongst the various uh, law enforcement officials and authorities that are trying to slow the uh, flow of narcotics into Europe and Eastern Europe. All right, I'm calling this one. Let's move on to the next news item. On Sunday, 12 of the best English, Spanish, and Italian soccer teams announced they're breaking away from their governing body, the Union of European Football Associations, or UEFA, and starting their own Super League. According to the New York Times, the formation of the Super League would represent the most significant restructuring of elite European soccer since the 1950s. But UEFA isn't going down without a fight. And even politicians like Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron are weighing in against the Super League. Like most big media decisions, this move probably comes down to money. John, what's the story? The way European soccer works now is that essentially, this is oversimplified, each country has its own league. And then the top teams from each league play off in something called the Champions League. 
which is a major moneymaker for television networks and therefore for the teams that get the television rights. Mm -hmm. This is a way of taking the very best teams, creating an NFL-like league, Mm -hmm. and then selling the television rights for vast sums of money, Mm -hmm. which is the play. The difficulty is going to be that devotion to soccer in each and every one of these countries is nearly, you know, 99.9%. And the idea of the best teams going off and forming their own league is going to irritate a vast fan base. And there will be a huge political reaction. So they just up and did this on Sunday. Is that right? <laughs> no, no, well, they no, no, no. If you go back, okay, the leagues were all going fine. Television rights were being sold. Mm-hmm. Everybody seemed to be making money except perhaps for, for the television broadcasters themselves. But the reason they had to be in on the soccer game is that the only thing that, that is appointment TV anymore mm-hmm. is live sports and live news. And in Europe, soccer is basically it. So that was all going along fine. And then the pandemic hit and the league essentially was interrupted. TV revenues collapsed. And to come out of it and justify the massive expense of that owners had gone to to buy the teams that they bought, they said to themselves, we're tied to leagues that have teams that aren't nearly as good as the teams we own. Why don't we combine all the best teams into one league mm-hmm. and then sell those television rights and we'll be financially in the black and we'll have the best television sports product in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they've done, yes. as we say here at News Items. <laughs> it's not the action, it's the reaction. Mm-hmm. And the reaction is already fierce and it will grow. Oh, it's just going to be fabulous. So this will bankrupt the national leagues, is that right? Not necessarily, but it's going it, to, I mean, it's not going to bankrupt them, but I don't really see how this Super League will allow its players to participate in domestic leagues, I suppose because they still draw revenue uh, from those domestic leagues, that that's a positive from their point of view. But the whole thing in soccer is to make sure that your team is in reasonably good shape when the playoffs, if you will, come round. And injury is a huge problem in soccer, And so if you're going to pay that much money to those players and the TV rights are going to be in the billions of dollars, it seems to me that there are a lot of incentives for the powers that be, if you will, to make sure that the players don't get injured. And the one way to make sure that the players are less likely to get injured is if they play fewer games. Well, it's going to be super contentious. Yes. Stay tuned. Which we like. It's yeah, good for news like. items. We like contention. <laughs> Moving on to another contest. John, for our latest news item, let's talk German politics. The Green Party has just named its candidate for chancellor, Annalena Baerbock, who has been co-leader of the Greens since 2018. At age 40, she would be the country's youngest chancellor ever. John, the Greens have been doing well in German polls, while the incumbent center-right bloc flails. What do you think of her chances? I think what happened because of the pandemic is that Germans began to rethink 
politics in general. And the Greens, who traditionally had been sort of a liberal, not particularly important party, recast themselves as this sort of muscular German national interest, Mm anti-Russian, very wary of the Chinese, but obviously committed to climate politics. And generationally, I think they've caught on. The CDU, which forever was always in the mid-30s or high-30s, is now at 27, and the Greens are at 23, which is within striking distance. I was going to say, I mean, CDU has dropped 10 points since January. Yeah. Is a shift like that significant in terms of German politics from a historical perspective? It's almost a third. Mm -hmm. The existing political order seems hidebound and tired and defeated and not particularly competent. Mm -hmm. People always thought, well, whatever else, the Germans make the trains run on time. The vaccination program put lie to that idea. And so there's an Mm -hmm. opening. Where do we go? And the Greens have smartly positioned themselves as a serious alternative. And she's terrific. I mean, people like her. And so they're in the game. And they could be the lead party in a future governing coalition. So she's 40. She's from the east, the eastern part of the country, like Angela Merkel. And her party is running on a platform to introduce a roughly 50 billion euro, 60 billion dollar plan to transform the German economy through digitally driven, technologically driven green innovation. Is that going to be a tough sell to German voters? Can she get 35 percent of them? Probably not. Can she get up to 27 or 28? Uh, Probably, you know. Mm -hmm. They're in a good place politically, right? They're talking about remaking the German economy. Obviously, that will engender fierce resistance in incumbent industries. But a lot of people agree that the need for innovation is acute. Mm -hmm. They see what's happening all around the world, whether it's Elon Musk or Silicon Valley or China, whatever. So that's a strong platform. Climate science is a strong platform. And the existing order not working, time for a change, is always a good message. So I'm not saying they are going to win. It's it, The likelihood is that they'll finish second, but they will be in the next government. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Germany is the heart of the EU, mm-hmm. the U.S.'s most important ally in Europe. Their implications of the election are vast. Absolutely. The election of the year to watch. We're going to take a moment to hear from our sponsors. and we come back, uh, you'll hear my interview with Ed Meir from Commodity Research Group. Rebecca, I know you interview yeah. people like Ed for your yeah. website, investableuniverse.com. Why did you uh, want to interview him for our podcast? Ed is the foremost metals expert on the planet. I'm not kidding. He has worked in multiple capacities in the global metals industry. And so I wanted to get Really, the unalloyed view, shall we say, from Ed. He is the guy to do it. Now we have to listen to the uh, interview. That's right. We'll be right back after a break. Ed Meir, Director, Commodity Research Group. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Rebecca. So you are like the preeminent metals and supply chain expert on planet Earth. Right now, I just want to say that. I just want to like set this so well. So, and I have to say that even for people who don't maybe pay a lot of attention to the metals markets or to these issues of global supply chains, there's something called the ever given. Yes. The mega tanker in the Suez Canal could not have run aground at a more inopportune time for global supply chains. Talk to us about what this means for 
the kind of commodity inputs or metal inputs that people may have taken for granted up to now? That vessel was uh, commanded a lot of attention, as you know, for, for the last few weeks. It was trending on Twitter as well. Yeah, People were saying, you know, I feel stuck too, and, you <laughs> yeah. know, things like that. Too big to sail. <laughs> so there was all sorts of jokes uh, floating around. But more, more seriously, uh, you know, there was, I, I think, something like 2,000 containers on board. Yeah. And this just aggravated the shipping situation even further because prior to that, you know, there was a mad scramble for containers. Containers were just in short supply. They were coming out of China in droves, but not as many were going back. So, you know, you kind of had to wait for a round trip. Container freight prices doubled, tripled, quadrupled in some cases. So this thing happened at just the worst, absolute worst time. At one point, about 400 vessels were uh, trapped on either side of the canal. And after six days, they finally dislodged it through dredging, tugboat activity, and most fortuitously due to a supermoon that lifted the tide (laughs) Mm -hmm. and managed to uh, put enough water underneath the vessel to finally move it out. So for how long do you see price impacts feeding through to finished goods as a result of the blockage in the Suez Canal? Right now, it's quite funny. I mean, everyone is buying stuff. You know, everyone is stuck at home buying stuff. So, you know, if you look at Chinese exports of washing machines, refrigerators, appliances, laptops, they're all up about 50% year over year. So there's an ongoing demand for products. And I think that's going to stay in place at least till the summer at which point people are going to start moving around. And once they start moving around and traveling, I think you could see some easing in these kind of stay-at-home purchases. Yeah, as more economic activity shifts back to services away from goods. Is that accurate to say? Exactly right. Okay, so one potential catalyst for multiple commodity markets, as well as publicly listed companies, could be the passage of Biden's very ambitious infrastructure plan here in the U.S. (laughs) How confident is the commodity investment community or even the commodity company community that this plan will get through? And what would that mean for commodity prices or the companies that sell those commodities? Another good question. If you look at what commodities have been doing over the last two, three months, they've kind of come off the boil a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. they're not moving up as much. Copper is down from its highs. Oil is down from its highs. You're getting some upward move in some of these sexy green uh, commodities like (laughs) cobalt and lithium Mm -hmm. and all the electric vehicle batteries. They're they're starting to move up. But, you know, in general, I think uh, the jury is out on this infrastructure bill because, Mm -hmm. number one, we're not sure it'll pass even with the 50-vote maneuver you know, the reconciliation process, it may still be difficult to get it through. Some senators have a problem with the taxes that are going to be needed to pay for it. The other issue is, you know, in the States, as you know, it takes forever to get anything done. In fact, there was an interesting quip from Jamie Dimond. I remember reading this. He said, it takes 10 years to build a bridge in the United States, 10 years. Mm -hmm. It took seven years to think of the Apollo program 
and to put a man on the moon. <laughs> so, you know, this kind of shows you the predicament we're in. You compare us to China. I, I would go there every year. And every year I go there, there'll be like five new bridges and 10 new high, uh, skyscrapers. And it, it's just incredible at what pace they work at, whereas here it just takes forever. So I think the impact of this infrastructure spending will be minimal because it's so drawn out. So let's just sort of take a tour of specific metals that have been moving a lot lately. I know that you mentioned copper prices have come off the boil a little bit and that this might be a good time to hedge for companies that have exposure to that market. But copper has been on a tear for many months. But in March, it showed its first monthly decline in almost a year. And I read in your research that you're not going to chase any rallies in copper right now. Do you think it's overdone or is that a... You know, I, I think right now I'm kind of neutral on copper. A lot of people are bullish on copper right now. Don't forget, copper has doubled in the past year. So a lot of the good news is already baked in. You know, we've gone into COVID. We're kind of coming out of it. The global economy has bounced back. In a way, if you want to have kind of a pithy phrase to uh, describe the whole thing, it's like uh, you buy the virus and sell the vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We're going to be saying that for years now. It used to be like buy the rumors, sell the news just for everybody, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar, right? So we're going to buy the virus. (laughs) Buy the virus, sell the vaccine. And that's exactly what's been happening ever since the vaccine (laughs) rollout has come out. Prices are starting to come down, which tells you that, you know, people want to, they're looking ahead, you know, they, they've seen what's happened, but and now they're saying, okay, what's next? You know, we're not going to be growing at six, eight, ten percent 10% a year this year or next year. What? We're not? <laughs> I think so. I mean, some of these Wall Street estimates are pretty... Yeah, sorry. For this year, we are. For this year, <laughs> we are. But next year, it slows okay, down yeah. dramatically. And you still have the problems that you had sort of pre-election. You still have the issues with China. You still have this kind of global unease that the tensions with Russia, with China, with North Korea, these things haven't gone away. Trade. Trade is still an issue, you know. So people are going to be revisiting these things and they'll say, okay, we're back to where we started from. Is there one specific commodity that is going to be the recovery barometer or the post-COVID barometer for economic health? I think, you know, I think oil is uh, possibly something that could move a bit higher. I don't think we've, yeah, I don't think we've seen uh, the demand come back yet in oil. Keep in mind, nobody's still traveling, you know, uh, airlines, uh, cruise companies, tourism, that's all kind of flat on its back. So I, I think at $57, $58 oil, you might get to uh, 70, 75 in the next year or two. And that's a pretty good risk reward. In fact, a lot of banks have 70 or 75 as their targets. I'm talking about, you know, you're looking at one year out, you know, a short term, sure, it could drop, but I'm kind of looking ahead one year from now, where will we be? And I think we'll be in a better place in terms of oil demand. Whether it's oil demand or commodity demand, sounds like you're pretty optimistic that the economy is going to be in a better place a year from now. I think so. You've got to be. You've got to be. This was just a horrendous year in many, many ways. And, uh, you know, I, I think the world has learned some lessons and hopefully we'll get back to more sustainable, credible growth without these, you know, major imbalances. That's what I'm hoping for. Certainly the stimulus is, is going to help. 
Awesome. Ed Mir, I always, it's like going to college again to talk medals with you. Don't mention it. You're, you're a great interviewer. <laughs> Thank Rebecca. you so Thank much. You. Thank you for talking today. My pleasure. That was a fabulous interview. I, I, by the way, I completely agree with him on infrastructure. Mm-hmm. No chance going down. And even if it did, it would be a decade before we'd see the first bridge. So not happening. It's not a done deal. It's a long, long, long process. So <laughs> with that, news items is a short process, however. And we'll be back tomorrow. You can you can count on that. News items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news.